Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined currently by Adam Andrews. Heidi White will be joining us here in a little bit. But Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, David. Good to be back. So we are here to discuss, as we have been the last few weeks, the last handful of weeks, we're here to discuss Ralph Moody's Little Britches, subtitled Father and I Were Ranchers. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to say a quick word from some friends because our friends over at our mutual friends, actually, over at Classical Academic Press are, uh, are sponsoring this episode's uh, this episode of Close Reads. And they wanted to tell you about Classical U. If you are a busy school or homeschool educator who is enthused about the classical tradition of education, uh, but who maybe wishes they had been classically trained, then Classical U uh, was created with you in mind. They're confident that this resource will inspire educators in school, homeschool, and co-ops to dig deep into the richness of learning, no matter where you find yourself on your journey in classical education. Discover over 35 self-paced courses, new content regularly added, community forums, and recently added accreditation through ACSI. You can begin your journey at classicalu.com. That's just the letter U, so classicalu.com. And Close Reads listeners can try Classical U free through June 29th. So if you visit classicalu.com, dot com slash code and then enter code Cersei podcast at checkout you can get uh, free access to all of the lectures all 35 self-paced courses at classical U. and again that's classical com slash code so uh thanks to classical U for sponsoring close reads and uh for the good work that they're doing i know that i think dad's done a couple lectures over there so um josh gibbs has done some things they've got some some great content over there if you want to dive deeper dig deeper which one would it be into the uh into the classical tradition so with that let's talk little bridges let's talk ralph moody and i have a question for you because i was digging around a little bit speaking of digging into into this book and into the author and i found um I think it's an afterword in some editions, but I found a little brief, you know, reflection that Ralph Moody wrote back in 1952. And I thought of you, Adam, because there's some things in here about, I guess, what some people might call authorial intent. Um, oh, really? Uh, have you read this by any chance? This thing that's an afterword in some versions of this note that he had on the on the book? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so I want to read a little bit of it. It's only like six total paragraphs. But I want to read a little bit because I'd be, it's be interesting to see how it might change or color some of the way we've been thinking about this book. Um, so how, does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love okay. to hear it. Okay, so he wrote, I'm, he begins, I'm not an author. I'm a businessman by force of circumstances and a farmer by instinct and heredity. In our business, we employ a great number of young people, boys and girls from 20 to 30 years of age. During the past two decades, of course, this was written in 1952, it has seemed to me that a great change was taking place in the ideals and outlook of our younger people, and even of some of the older ones. When I was a boy on the ranch, I used to look forward to the day when I'd own my own cattle and horses and land, when I'd have my own home, a wife to make that home, and children to run out to meet me as I came in from the fields. By the time I was 11, I was very proud of being in the livestock business. I couldn't have horses and cattle, so I had rabbits. I bred the best ones so as to improve my stock and traded the others or sold them for meat. The other boys I traded with were doing the same thing, and I know my sisters were looking forward to the time when they'd have homes to keep and children to raise. Lately, though, there seems to be a quite different outlook. 
A little while ago, I was talking with a friend about my feelings in the matter. I told him that I thought we'd raise better citizens in this country if people still had to scramble for a living as we used to when I was a boy. Then I told him a bit about the way we met our living after my father died, that there were six of us, and that I became the man of the family when I was 11. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The man says, basically the man says, write an article for me. He says, this article got away from me. I didn't know how to go about writing it, but I was having so much fun reliving my boyhood and writing my memories down on paper that in three months I had a whole drawer full of typed sheets. And I'd never got as far as the part of the story I'd sat to write down. That drawer full became little britches. Um... Then he says this, which this is really interesting, I think. Though old timers around Littleton, Colorado would tell you that both stories are true, I didn't write them as family history or as autobiography. I wrote them so that some of our younger people might see how the self-respecting common people of this country lived 40 to 50 years ago. I wanted them to feel the warmth of the close family circle where the mother made the home and bound it together with her own affection. And I wanted to show them the joy, pride, and self-satisfaction that for me, has always been a part of providing for a family with my own two hands. Our family was not unusual. There were and still are thousands of other families in this country who are facing the same sort of situations without complaint and who have, been, and who have not been misled by the political cry that they are underprivileged. I simply used incidents from our own life because it was easier for me than to dig them out of the lives of other families. And besides, I was having fun reliving the happiest childhood a boy ever had. Ralph Moody, 1952. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So a couple things I think come up or, or a couple questions came, came to mind as I was reading this and digging around. Um, in particular, as relates to our conversation about work last week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you were being a little, I think, at least a little bit tongue in cheek while perhaps also being semi-serious. You told me at the conference last weekend that uh, what, what you, you were using an analogy of the, of the car. What's, the, what's, your, what's your car? <laughs> <laughs> put you back on the yeah. spot here do you want me to explain it go, yeah explain your car your car your car uh what is your, your theory of work you know i merely observed i merely observed <laughs> uh -huh. that the the best way to ensure that a car or a machine lasts long into the future is to park it in a garage out of the weather and never <laughs> drive it that's all i said and this is your this is your philosophy of work right it's my philosophy of exercise, to be more specific. <laughs> it's my philosophy of exercise. Here's what the human body needs, I said, tongue-in-cheek. Of course. The yeah. human body needs rest and food. And I was sitting on a couch when I said it, eating something, <laughs> I think. Yeah, you actually, you're about to start talking, which I thought I enjoyed. Um, <laughs> you're about to start a lecture. Okay, so you were being tongue-in-cheek. I imagine some people, you know, maybe were... Maybe missed the sarcasm, but that's part of the fun, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting here. it wasn't a video because it was written all over my face. Exactly. I, it was absolutely, um, it was in your eyes. I'll say that. So, <laughs> as as things often are with you. So, um, okay. So, so, he does, he kind of is talking, though, about a philosophy of work here, here in this, in this afterward. Or wherever yeah, this is. Yeah, it seems very you know, clear is, that he is. Absolutely. Because, because he, he says very specifically... Um, I lost it. <laughs> oh, we'd raise better citizens in this country if people still had to scramble for a living as we used to when I was a boy. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, is this meant to just be quite straight autobiography? Is he fudging some of the stories a little bit, you know, a la right. Laura Ingalls? Is it meant to just be straight? In some ways, it reads like a hagiography almost to his father. So there's all these different questions we've been having. But it seems very clear 
this seemed like the appropriate time to bring this up about two thirds of the way through the book, that it seems very clear that he has a purpose here. Yeah. Do it does you, seem do, clear. Does that, um, does it color the way, does it affect the things you've been, that we've been talking about or the things we've been thinking about or any of the questions you've had about this book as you've been reading? Or do you think that that was already kind of abundantly clear and he didn't need to write, you know, write something like this? I'm kind of, I kind of approve of the idea that this was, you know, such as it needs me to approve of it, um, of this, the idea that this, this is made as an afterword in some editions as opposed to a forward, because I think there's some value possibly in, you know, reading the book and then thinking about these things, but that might just be me. So I'm curious, how does this, how does, how does what I just read to you affect the things we've been talking about and thinking about together? Yeah, that's great. I, I appreciate you reading it. I think I agree that, uh, that, that having those paragraphs as an afterword is, is more literarily effective than having them as a forward because we could have the kind of conversations we've been having about the, the relationship between autobiography and memoir and, um, I don't know, didactic piece is probably overstated, but we've been talking about, well, you know, to what degree this book is one or the other. And so we, I, I hear these, these thoughts from Moody himself and that tells me that um, that he's writing to assert a cultural position. He's writing to to um, to advocate for a particular set of ideas, for a particular way of life. He's actually doing something beyond uh, a pure literary goal mm. and trying to write, you know, write something for the 1950s and mm. encourage a particular kind of of worldview. So I think that does sort of affect how we how we go back and read it. I mean, the number one principle of reading from my perspective is we're trying to hear the author mm-hmm. uh, and to have the conversation that the author is trying to start. And if mm. it turns out that the conversation he's confessedly trying to start has to do with the value of hard work and the, the I think what he said is the raising of, of citizens. Yeah, better, raising uh, we, better citizens, yeah. Yeah, if, if raising citizens is the reason he wrote or, or one of them, well, we are bound to as readers to consider that as the, as the, uh, one of the main themes of his book and one of the purposes that, uh, that we're supposed to consider as reading uh, as readers. So I think it does, I guess that's a long way of saying it does affect how we read uh, another conversation that, that we then have is, does that, um, improve the book in our estimation? Yeah. That, or, was, that was what I was gonna, that's what I was going to bring up. Yeah, I, and you know that's that's something we can continue to talk about. But uh, but one one idea in that connection is um, as I as I go back to the chapters now and read about young Ralph, um, because he, Moody has told me so, I am less inclined to um, to look back and say that's really how it went with him. It's it's less memoir, it's less autobiography yeah. by his own admission than yeah, maybe yeah. I thought it was before. Does so, that? So, go, oh, go, go ahead, ahead go ahead. No, sorry. Go. You finish. Well, I think Heidi and I were talking in a previous uh, episode about about uh, the question: Is this is this a guy just remembering his fond childhood? And um, and it sounds like maybe not, hmm. not as much anyway. He, he, yeah. What does he say? He's using uh, events from his childhood um, as a jumping off point for for making this argument. And so yeah. I he I says, suspect though- that. Uh, I suspect maybe he he took some of those events and said, "Okay, this would be a good place to this would be a good event to massage and help me make my point." And so maybe he was you know fast and loose with the details. 
Yeah, yeah. He says, though old-timers around Littleton, Colorado, would tell you that both stories are true. I didn't write them as family history or as autobiography. Um, and it's, that's so interesting that I wrote them so that some of our younger people might see how the self-respecting common people of this country lived 40 to 50 years ago. And he really speaks against this concept of, of um, what does he say? Under we, He doesn't want people like the people he describes in the story to look at themselves as underprivileged, which is this, he mentions as a word that seems to be taking on, um, taking on some popularity in the, in the early fifties. So it seems yeah. like there's this concept of, of pride even in what's going on in, in what he's after in the story that, that he helps people take pride in the heritage, um, in the, in the work itself, in, in the communities, in, you know, in their, even in their lot in life, it's and that does seem like something in some ways that Ralph's father really pursues and 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 tries to get, um, it tries to get young Ralph to to buy into. But that, yeah. but it also seems to be really tied to the point of conflict that is, um, you know, the stuff we've talked about with his mother wanting to bring civilization in. Because yeah. the father is saying we can take pride in this, and certainly the author is saying we can take pride in this way of life that we've that we're participating in, even as the mother is sort of trying to, so maybe buying into this concept of the underprivileged nature. So that that adds his perspective in this afterward adds a little bit to that discussion. I think. I wonder what he means by underprivileged. I mean, it sounds like a very, yeah. um, it sounds like a current political and social issue in the fifties that yeah, uh, yeah. I think he had reference in one of those sentences there to, you hear people talk today about thus and so. And I missed that because I, you know, I wasn't around and, I, and I, I'm not familiar with exactly what he was referring to, but, um, but that sort of uh, locates the story mm. in a, in a, in a very specific time and place makes it a little less universal to hear Moody talk mm. about it like that. Don't you think? Yeah, it does sort of. Um, I wonder what his, you know, he, if he's writing for 1952, I wonder what he's thinking people in 2019 or whatever, you know, even 1992. I wonder what he was hoping they would they would get out of it. I, I mean, I assume he, he was not trying to predict that things would become even less of what it was in 1908, 100 years later. But I wonder if he, I wonder if, I wonder That's if his, I mean, did he write it specific? Did he, did he, was he hoping that it was specifically going to be a book that was going to mean something in 1952 and didn't think much about a hundred years later? Or, or well, was he that, thinking this is... That's the sense is, I get from his comments that he's, yeah. uh, it's, it, I mean, I don't want to um, overreact to the comments, but it sounds, yeah. there's a little bit of a tone in what you read of kids today, yeah, yeah. you know, desensitized <laughs> by movies and television. We got to yeah, get yeah. him out on the farm a little bit. I mean, he sounds a little. It's a little curmudgeonly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, it, I, and I, for that reason, I wonder if if he's looking, he's looking at the fifties and not really looking ahead. Hmm. And it, his admission at the beginning, I'm an, I'm not an author. I'm a businessman, yeah. and I work with young people, and I see that young people, uh, you know, ought to be more like they were fifty years ago. Hmm. That doesn't that doesn't sound like someone who's looking off into the future. It sounds like someone who's criticizing the present a little bit. Mm. And also, I mean, do you th- we talk, we've talked about this concept of over-romanticizing the past. Do you think that he is in danger of 
of over romanticizing the past, even even more so given what he's written here, that that he seems to be overvaluing it. Do you think? Well, I, maybe that that may be that may be true. I mean, maybe that's putting it strongly. Sure, but yeah. um, com- that but the comments yeah. you read today combined with the um the really sunny picture that you get of young Ralph and his situation, even in the chapters we're talking about today, when he continues to get into scrapes and he continues to act like a kid and break stuff and, and (laughs) including his toes and, and be the cause of all kinds of disaster and destruction. It's always Mm. with such a, um, with such a positive glow about it. He's, Mm. he Mm. loves every minute of it. And all of the people that are in the story are so such good influences that, um, the the com the difference between those two things um makes me think maybe he is pointing back to an idealized past i mean frankly he admits it yeah that's really kind of what he says when he says that everyone would tell you that these stories are true but it's not autobiography or family history what it is is romanticizing a past as a way to to improve the young people of today Hmm. He has this line at the end where he says, this was the happiest childhood a boy ever had. Um, that's a, I want to, I think we should hold off on discuss that line in the last episode when we, when we do our, um, when we, when we talk about the ending. So I think we should keep that in mind because in many ways, I wonder if he's being completely honest. Like, I wonder if he really was as happy at the time, given the things that they had to endure as he is, you know, as an older man as a 60 year old man or whatever, looking back. Huh, interesting. Um, because, in, you know, they, he certainly endures a great deal of hardship and it, and it only gets harder as, as you know, as the book ends. Right. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I was, that's, that's one of those lines where I wonder if it's, um, it's almost, it, it, it goes along with that, um, kind of being critical of, if he's being critical of the young people of the time who are unsatisfied. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, go ahead. Well, I just think it, it's um, in some ways uh, that afterward is unfortunate because it, it, it ties the story down to a, a to a particular social and even political purpose. Yeah. At least a social purpose that, that Ralph Moody, the, the author had, if you, if you, ignore the afterward, there are things about the story itself that partake without, without doing any violence to the idea of authorial intention. There are mm-hmm, things about mm-hmm. the story that partake of, of transcendent themes Yeah, that even yeah. in his, in his super positive rosy colored glasses type approach to the story, yeah, even yeah. despite that, there, there are eternal transcendent themes in it. The, the, the relationship that young Ralph has with his father, like in this chapter 17 about going to see the sheriff, yeah, the way that his yeah. father says, uh, you're a man, there's a law against killing pheasants. You got to go turn yourself in. Um, mm-hmm. There is something so compelling about mm-hmm. uh, the way that he does what his father says and goes and takes a man's part. And um, it, it's, it's a true it's a true event whether or not it actually happened Hmm. because a father loves his son like that and gives him the kind of guidance that he gave Ralph and Ralph appreciates it and looks up to his father. And this is true, whether you're telling the truth about the details or not. Also, Hmm. 
in in the context of today's discussion, this is true whether you're trying to to beat the young people of your own generation about the head with it. It's actually one of the things about the world that mm. is worthwhile to contemplate, and I would say does the soul good to contemplate. Mm. And so, I guess I guess what I'm saying is he didn't need to probably write the afterward in order to accomplish what he set out to do. Okay, so you, so you mentioned you just mentioned something that I find that I've been thinking about since last weekend, because you may, this idea of even if it didn't happen, it's still true. This is a really interesting idea to me because somebody came up to me after a conversation that Ian and I led at the great homeschool convention in Cincinnati. We were doing a kind of a close read style, bibliophiles style discussion on the book, right? And actually, we were talking about Rumpelstiltskin. And somebody came oh, up yeah. to me afterwards, and he said, you know, his man and his wife, um, and they're very thoughtful, very nice people. Um, and they said, the man said, my wife's a huge Star Wars fan. And the wife said something like, yes, I'm trying to raise the, my children to be Star Wars fans too, you know? And he said, he, he seemed to be having trouble with um, this concept of what is true and the value of fiction, I think. It was a big part of it. Like he seemed to be asking if, if these things are just made up, they seem arbitrary. Um, they seem, they're, you know, they seem to be less valuable than reading, say, a history or something like that, where you know that oh. it's true. He, he mentioned uh, Ray in Star Wars. Um, he said one of the, you know, in these, all these new Star Wars movies, the big question is who's Ray's parents? I don't, you, whether or not, I don't know if you've watched it. Whether or not you've watched it doesn't. There's this character, everyone wants to know who her parents are. Are, they, are right. her parents Skywalkers or something like that? And so, so he said, but that doesn't, you know, that's not, determined that it can be whoever the creators, the storytellers want it to be, you know, it, it's not, it's not a thing until they say, you know, right. and so he's, he's talking about it, you know, as in there's this question of authorial invention even. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the, this question of, you know, if something's made up, is it not true? And you said, even if it's not true, it's even if it's not true, even if it never happened, it's true. You said, Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Oh, Heidi's here. Welcome to the show, Heidi. You Hi, appeared out of Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, all right, Adam, I'll go back to you now. So we, we, um, we're talking about this idea of it may not have really happened, was what you said, but it was still true. Yeah. This idea of truth and fiction, even though things are made up. How would you, how would you, so how would you respond to that question that that person asked me and Ian? I'm, I was just, I was, I'm sitting there thinking, I need to remember this for the podcast. I need to ask Heidi yeah, and, yeah. and Adam this. Um, it's a so great question. I'm going to let you have this, have the floor first since you said that original quote and then I'll let Heidi respond to you. Well, one of the things to keep in mind with respect to, to literature and fiction that's hard to keep in mind when you're dealing with autobiography or something that's ostensibly autobiographical like Little Britches is that literature is first and foremost imaginary art, imaginative art. And so yeah. the question of true and the question of real, um, th those terms have less to do with the facts of the thing that's being artistically represented than they do with the themes that those things are arranged around. Hmm. Um, I mean, to put that in really simple terms, Huckleberry Finn never existed. We all know this, right? 
he's false in a, in, in a sense. He's imaginary. Uh, he never, it never happened. The events that Mark Twain describes in his novel never actually took place. There's no such thing as St. Petersburg, Missouri. Um, it's all, it's all made up, but, but I think the term true applies to the adventures of Huckleberry Finn in a very specific literary artistic way, by which I mean the themes that Mark Twain is trying to emphasize are worthy of consideration. And he's trying to say true things, at least true from his perspective about the world using these imaginary constructs, including his characters. He wants to talk about the the brotherhood of all men and the fact that regardless of the color of your skin, you have um, a million human things in common with your neighbor. Mm. And obviously this is true, or at least Mark Twain wants to convince us that this is true. And so I guess with respect to Little Britches, like in chapter 17, as we were just talking about, when young Ralph goes to see the sheriff and his relationship with his father is deepened and his respect for his father is is more and more profound afterwards than before. The kind of of theme that Moody is talking about with respect to fathers and sons is a true thing. And if 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 Ralph Moody said, you know what I need to do is come up with a scene where the young protagonist respects his father for teaching him character. And I just need to make it up out of whole cloth and, and, and tell all my readers that it was me as a child doing something that I never, ever did. Mm-hmm. It would still be true mm-hmm. because it's literature. He's making it up mm-hmm. in order to talk about something that he feels is true and wants us to agree with him about. Mm-hmm. Does, does it make it... So, so what I mean, would you argue then that what we're talking about is just sort of different planes? I'm trying to think of how to ask this question I've never thought about before. Um, okay, so if we're talking about like, is something more worthwhile than something else? Because this person who seemed to be getting at this idea that right. he's trying to figure out how much value should I put in made up things in my children's education? Yeah. And so he's thinking, yeah. you know, I can, we can read history and things like that theology, you know, such things that are sort of fact or, you know, um, dogma or, um, you know, some kind of capital T truth related. Um, and then I can, we, we can, or we can spend all our time reading all these stories and he's trying to figure out which one do I value. But would you say that what we're looking at is sort of value on different planes? Like it's, it's just sort of different kinds of values or, or would you make? I mean, is it? Was it even? Is that even a? Is that a debate worth having with oneself? I, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a lit guy. I'm yeah, um, yeah, yeah. right. I'm, my whole professional career is devoted to the liberal arts, and in particular, the imaginative arts. And one of the reasons that I'm doing that is that I think there's something uniquely valuable about the literary tradition that we are heirs to. There's something uniquely valuable about contemplating Odysseus and Achilles and Aeneas and Dante's protagonist and Shakespeare's Hamlet and something uniquely valuable about those things that you cannot get from reading an encyclopedia article or studying Elizabethan history or studying Greek history. Um, So maybe you're right. Maybe it's two different kinds of value and two different kinds of truth, but I would, uh, I would hesitate to, to say that one is more uh, important than the other. That's not true. I'd, I wouldn't hesitate. I think the imaginative truth, the, the, the literary truth, the truth of art is in some ways more important 
because it touches us in our souls in a way that that um, that sheer fact does not. Mm. You took a really dramatic turn there in the course of one second. I know I did, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was great. We just I think you just had a moment. Um, <laughs> hey Heidi, so for you, does the fact that he has sort of you know that maybe well he says this is. Well, things people around Littleton, Colorado would tell you both stories are true. I didn't write them as family history or as autobiography. I wrote them so that some, some of our younger people might see how the self-respecting common people of this country lived 40 to 50 years ago. So given that, given that some things may or may not have happened, does it change the way you think we need to approach this book? If we're saying this is not true fact, you know, and some of it may, may be made up and we don't know, we can't know unless he wrote something else that says this was true and this was made up. Does that change how you think we should read this book? Absolutely not. This is, I mean, to Adam's point, an author crafts the world of a story that tells a larger story, right? Our souls and I kind of crave this redemptive arc with these moments along the way that curate and create who we are in a story like this. And so to make up moments like that, that he had with his dad or with these other men of character that have shaped him and who he becomes, that is the truer story. Uh, even if he had to kind of change some of those events or add or subtract or whatever it was that he had to do to tell this larger, truer story, this redemptive story arc that created this man of character that he became, Hmm. the facts of the case, the biography of the case is really not the point. The point is how did this story arc develop to make a man? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was thinking of uh, another example um, that we, I think we mentioned before Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird is a memoir uh-huh. too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Entirely fictional. Right. And yeah. It's even in the first person, just like Little Britches. Yeah. But the, you know, the protagonist is, a, is imaginary. Hmm. It, several years ago, maybe you guys remember this, there was a book called A Million Little Pieces or A Million Tiny Pieces. It was the story, like a rehab story. And it was really popular. It was on all the, bestseller lists and he was doing the talk show circuit and it was his this author i can't remember his name but i think it's james frey i think yes it is james frey did either of you read that book i did not it i didn't i read bits, bits and pieces of it but it was a good book but it turned out that he made up the story he claimed that it was a memoir of his recovery but it turned out he made up a lot of it but and and oprah had him on and just like ripped him to pieces for being a liar after it came out that he had made a lot of this up. And I watched that episode. I never watched Oprah, but I liked the book and I was having the kind of this internal debate with myself. And I hoped that he would say what we're saying now. And instead he apologized. I'm so sorry. And I was exposed for being a liar and blah, blah, blah. I'm a fraud. And it, you know, he never really wrote anything again. It destroyed his career. But I wish he would have stood up and said, I was telling a truer story. This is the arc of my redemption. I fictionalized it. Yeah, I admit it. Because that told a better and a truer story, which is kind of the story of the world of creation, fall, redemption. That Mm. is 
you know, that's worth telling, even if you have to fictionalize something. Well, I, and I think, it, though, tell the truth. I you think know, Ralph, Ralph Moody, Moody did. Yeah, I think his afterward is is in that vein. He basically yeah. says, "Hey, look, it's not uh, not all factually true, but I wasn't trying to." be factually true. I was trying to right. paint a picture and and describe a story arc and underscore some themes. I was well, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, that's what I had to say. Well, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about the way sometimes stories um evolve in our own imaginations. The way mm-hmm. our the way the way we lived it um might be one thing, but then of course over the years, the way we remember things and what they those those events mean to us can evolve and change and grow and, and, you know, and then, then, then those are the things that really um, make us who we are more than the actual fact of the case. Right? right. The way we, the way we think about what happened to us probably has as much to do with what the, the event itself does to us as the event itself. Um, that's, I mean, certainly that's not true all the time, but I suspect that our imaginations, I mean, I suspect that in, to some degree, we're all storytellers, right? We're all, we're all novelists telling stories or, or interpreting events in a specific in a specific imaginative way that's informing the person we become, yes. bit by bit, right? Um, do you agree with that concept? Absolutely, that, yes. yeah, yeah, I, I, I do, and I, I think uh, that that the uh, our imaginative lives uh, touch on a reality that is uh, that is below the level of fact. I, I, I think about the um, the classic kids story the velveteen rabbit in this connection all the time hmm. you, know, well, you remember that but the underlying question of this story about the little kid with the with the toy rabbit is what is real yeah and uh the velveteen the, the velveteen rabbit wants to be a real rabbit more than anything and uh it turns out that he's been real all along because of something subfactual because right. of the love that the little boy has for him and so the story basically suggests that reality is has more to do with what's going on in the mind and heart than it does with what's going on at the tips of the fingers. Right. And I think that's I, I think you're getting at that, David. I would agree with you. Hmm. Well and our stories are more than the sum of their parts. Right. When we look back on the story of our lives, we've told ourselves something about all the factual things that happened to us. And that thing we tell ourselves is far more formative than the actual experience, right? And so that is a mystery about being human that the materialistic kind of zeitgeist does not understand that we become more than the sum of our parts. And yeah. that's what leads us towards our ultimate destiny in the kingdom of God. And I think literature, to your point, Adam, is one of the things that shows us that. When you look at something like Little Britches and you see that this man, Ralph Moody, was made by this story and by the actual things that happened to him. Yeah. And, and literature tells us that maybe more than anything else, that there's a mystery in our becoming. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery in our becoming. That's interesting. I was thinking about how, you know, given his goal of creating better citizens and all these sorts of things, it's his, the way he structurally or formally structures the story is kind of interesting because it seems like for the most part, he's weaving in and out of these 
he'll have a chapter where he gets into a scrape. And then there's a chapter that's a little more contemplative and something good is happening. And then the next chapter, there's a scrape again. And he seems to be weaving in and out of the scrapes. Um, uh-huh. So it seems like there's this, something happens to him. He has, there's time, then his life has this moment where there's time to think about it. You know, <laughs> um, you know, so he, he, um, there's the chapter about how he gets into trouble and he has, because he shot the, or he accidentally trapped the quail, right? And then there's the uh, chapter where they pheasant. become... The pheasant, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. And then, um, have they, either of you guys eaten pheasant, by the way? Yes. No, I haven't. Well, of course, Heidi has. She lives in Colorado. She probably, <laughs> they, probably, they probably shot it, too. She probably, she probably nope, needs to turn herself no, I in. Not. I ordered it at a fancy restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> nope, no, I did not. <laughs> Uh, just she just wants to make it clear that Heidi White did not trap or shoot any pheasants while living <laughs> in the state of Colorado. Um, and then so then then there's the next one. They become partners, and then the next one is um, about trapping pe- trapping the pheasants, trapping the peasants. <laughs> uh, um, it's against the law to shoot a peasant. <laughs> oh man. Um, so, so I don't know what I was saying. So structurally, uh, structurally, he seems to be going in and out of these things. And it seemed, you mentioned the sum of the parts, like these things all sort of seem to be adding up to mean to, 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 to be, to be working towards something one bit at a time. Like it, it, there seems to be this very specific, um, arc of maturity going on. Right. Oh yeah. And yeah, is, sure. is the way Adam, I'll ask you this is the way that he structures this arc of maturity where something happens, you know, something, some kind of scrape or he gets in some kind of trouble, he gets hurt in some way. And then you have this chapter that sort of settles things down for a bit and then it gets into some other scrape or learns some other lesson. Is that, would you say tra- uh, sort of a, the traditional arc for a building's Roman or coming of age novel it, that it sort of goes back and forth like that or is Moody yeah. breaking in the mold in some way? No, I think it, it's uh, it's what you expect when you realize, okay, young boy looks up to his dad, and he's and this is going to be the story about him taking his dad's place or becoming a man or something. I don't know if it's chapter by chapter that he structures it necessarily because it's he alternates between laying out a scrape that Ralph gets in and then interpreting it for us, kind of even within the the episodes. Yeah, sure, I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, chapter eighteen, which is the one where he says we become partners, mm-hmm. I think it's just really. Uh, kind of a moving chapter and really compelling, but he uh, he's, it's the one about the chocolate where he decides he's going to, he's going to steal a, a piece of chocolate and tries to justify it because he's actually earned a lot of the money that went into buying it. And it's really kind of his, yeah. he, but, but he doesn't tell his folks about it. And, and, uh, and he does, he, he does a little interpreting of the kind that you're describing right in the middle of the episode where he recalls the bad King from Hamlet he doesn't uh-huh. name him, but it's Claudius the murderer, right? Who in Act Three of Hamlet tries to pray. <laughs> I love that. But that he can't great. pray because, and and Ralph quotes him because, oh, my offense is rank. Right. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I loved it. That's but, why. That's why you need to read great literature, right there. Yeah. yeah. Right. This wonderful allusion to to Hamlet, but um. But I love the sing-song way that he sort of slides in and interprets and say, "I was, you know, I'm wrestling with integrity. I'm wrestling with being upfront about things, and uh, I wasn't old enough to have gone around that corner yet. And this is one moment where I did. And that wonderful conversation with his father, 
where he says, uh, I don't want to deal with any shady people, any dishonest people. But if you, if you'll be honest, I'd, there's nobody I'd rather work with. And, uh, and then it, the, the chapter ends with the, that wonderful line where his father says at the bunkhouse door, he shook hands with me and said, good night, partner. When I went to sleep, my hand was still hurting good from where he squeezed it when we shook hands. I mean, it's just, ah, I love that chapter, but it, yeah. it's a great example. I think of what you're saying that he's structuring, the, the episodes with interpretive material in between so that we don't miss the, the building's Roman arc that's going on. Another thing that I really loved about these chapters is, as David, as you said, this arc of maturity and the development of his conscience and being kind of led toward higher things. I love that all of him to all of his temptations are very earthy, like chocolate and riding a horse. You know, these very important things to a boy, like physical things. Yeah, things free, you, freedom. You do, yes. And, and what his father is asking of him is to rule himself so that he can have those things, but have them within the boundaries of maturity and honesty and kind of these higher things that it's oriented towards. And But it's hard on Ralph. I really like that there's it's not just one turning point and then I was honest forever because of this one thing. <laughs> yeah. right. yeah. He still goes through temptations. He still has a desire to do wrong. He's... Uh, and he doesn't understand the higher things quite yet, right? He's just doing it to please his father, not because he loves virtue yet. He's mm. doing it because of the boundaries of this relationship. It's just a very real trajectory of moral development in the inner life and the outer life of this young man. And I really appreciated that because there's so many other of these coming of age stories that kind of have this one turning point instead of this like multiple temptations. And then he kind of learns a little better every time how to, how to rule himself. And I appreciated that. I was reading this the other day, just this is personal. I was reading this other day, having a really hard day with one of my kids. And I was like, I don't want to sit down and read Little Bridges because it's going to be all about this perfect parent who does this one thing. And then this kid is <laughs> great forever. And, and as I was reading it, I was like, no, this is just real. This is real parenting. This is a real family. This is a real child that to our point of whether these stories are a little fictionalized to tell kind of a better work of literature, it still has this very human real element that you read it and it rings true. Hmm. Well, that speaks to, you know, earlier we were talking about whether before you came on, whether his goal, you know, of making better citizens in 1952, looking back at the early part of the 20th century, whether that, I, I, what's the word? Like, makes it a little less universal, I suppose. But it seems like what you're speaking to there is the fact that you know, no matter what his his sort of stated goal was, there are, there are still these universal realities, these universal experiences that are that that are meaningful to us, to people, no matter when they live, whether they live in 1952 or 2002 or 2020. Um, so it seems you know that it seems. <laughs> It seems like sometimes we talked about this idea of authorial intent, Adam. It seems like, you know, the good story at times, whether or not the author 
totally in, intends to, I'm sure he did intend to, but is still going to, if the author has some skill and talent and ability to, to see clearly with his imagination, is still going to speak to and, and capture and, and uh, harness universal, universal truth. Even I think if, so. And, no and I think what. the reason is that, that even if he has a very specific time-bounded purpose, even a political purpose, he knows instinctively that the best way to, to convince people, the best way to make a change is to write something that's universally applicable. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a sense in our... We have a taste in our hearts for universal, transcendent truth. And so if he, even if he wants to make a, make a political social change in 1952... He can tell that the best way to do that is to say something universal or say mm. something transcendent, and I think that's the thing that lasts even past the fifties, and the reason that we're that it's a compelling story uh, all these years later. Mm. Mm. I completely agree with that. And reading me afterward made me think of Charles Dickens and how when Dickens was writing specifically a Christmas Carol, he was doing it to create political change. And that never happened. But the story was so potent in delving into the human heart and the redemptive arc of this character that that's what Dickens is remembered for. And Mm. I think that has happened with a lot of authors that write what they intend to be, which really comes down to sometimes propaganda, right? I'm trying to get something done by telling this story with all this pathos to make you feel sorry for these characters so that you we could create change. There's nothing wrong with that. But a, a lot of the time, what ends up enduring is the human, the story about the human condition. And I think this book is another example of that. In fact, his stated purpose, I'm curious about this, Adam, because I was, as I read it, his stated purpose is in many ways the thing that you said in our last time wasn't the greatest purpose for a story, right? To kind of create this nostalgia for the past. Is that true? What did you think about his afterwards in that sense? Uh, ask the question one more time. I think it's a last really good question. We talked about kind of not using a story to create nostalgia for the past. Yeah, over-romanticizing. Yes. The dangers. Oh, of yeah. And in right. some ways, he was saying, that's what I'm actually trying to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I think I said to David if, I mean, a couple of minutes ago, to the degree that that is the, that that is the purpose of this story, um, on the one hand, we are bound as readers to... Uh, to participate in the conversation that the author wants to have, especially if he tells us, this is why I wrote, this is the conversation I want to have, then we're bound to have that conversation with him. Um, the question of whether that makes it better art or worse is a separate question. Right. And, um, and I actually, you know, my own opinion is that um, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? To, to curry or, or foment nostalgia uh-huh. is, um, is maybe not the highest literary purpose there can be yeah. and uh, you know little bridges might fall might fall short of some of the great works of literature precisely because this is ralph moody's purpose or one of them hmm. um but but that is if that is what he was after then the subject of nostalgia is something that we are bound to contemplate when we read it well, for this episode, we should we should start thinking about wrapping it up soon. But I wanted to I want to ask one final question related to this whole thing here. 
So to what extent should we be talking about um, what it is that Ralph Moody's after when we read this, when we read a book like this with our kids? So he has given a stated, you know, a, a stated goal. You know, he said, this is, I want to make better citizens in 1952 because I feel like what we are doing in 1952 is not as good as what people were experiencing in 1908 or whatever. So given that when we're reading with our kids, how much do we need, do you think, to, to talk about what his goals were? You know, I mean, or, does, or do you think that it's, uh, I don't know, self-evident enough and kids will, will grasp onto that? Uh, I, I know some kids are probably listening, but a lot of people are reading this book with, read, along with their kids and then coming to listen to the show. So it seems like it's probably um, at least a relevant question given, given for this particular book, especially. Heidi, what do, you, what do you think about that? And then I'll let Adam, Adam respond and then we'll wrap up for today. Well, I think it's really just like any other read aloud. Sometimes you make it a literary experience when you have these discussions and, you know, you have the kids write their narrations and all that stuff. And sometimes it's just something you read before bed and you close it and you put it aside. So it has to do with your, you know, particular educational and discipleship goals for any given book. No, I don't think it has to be part of the conversation. But if I were reading this novel aloud to my kids, I would read that afterward and probably out loud to them and probably say, well, what do you think about that? How did this, do you wish that you lived on a ranch? Like, you know, whatever developmentally appropriate questions can kind of take the kids into the heart of the novel. I would certainly engage them in that, but I wouldn't, you know, waste any well waste is a strong word i probably wouldn't <laughs> expend any energy trying to impose this you know thematic and structural understanding of the work upon my kids in order to feel like they got it hmm. adam i think that's really good I think I would I would try not to freight it with all those expectations either. Right. To the extent that I that we we were having a thematic conversation, I think one interesting line of of discussion would be, um, uh, and and it, obviously it would depend on the age of the kids and stuff. But but he's got this this um, this goal to make better citizens, and in order to achieve it, he's using he's referring to these universal transcendent themes of father son love and maturity and. Uh-huh. And so it would be fun to talk about with students um, whether or not those themes land more more heavily in the heart because they're couched in the farming world of 1908. Hmm. And to ask the kids, do you think that your relationship with your father or your own arc of maturing would be affected? And how would it be affected by living on a farm hmm. and by doing these particular kinds of hard scrabble type jobs and learning the, the hard work this way. Do you think that's unique to that? Do you have to live that way in order to have the kind of relationships that he's describing? Or is there a, um, are you living your own version of that here in the 21st century? That would be a fun discussion to have with uh-huh. students and maybe would, would achieve Ralph Moody's purpose uh, in, uh, in a way that he didn't intend. Hmm. It strikes me that this is one of the great values of comparison, you know, even comparing different stories to each other, you know, because you could talk about what other stories kind of do something similar here. And then are there other examples where, you know, some of the, some of the universal themes he's talking about are, are, are are there common stories where common kinds of stories where those things are appealed to? And then what other kinds of stories are they appealed to 
yeah. uh, that are different. You know, Little House yeah. on the Prairie obviously comes to mind. There's some of the same concepts, you know, some of the same themes and ideas are appealed to in a book like that. And so there's obvious comparison. There's a lot of, you know, father, son, mother, daughter, family um, themes are, are appealed to right. stories of farming and things like that. Maybe more so. Whereas there's other kinds of, you know, like a crime, crime fiction appeals, tends, tends to appeal to a different kind of universal theme, really great crime fiction, you know, spy fiction or whatever. So then you can get into the idea that there are certain forms, certain kinds of stories that seem, seem best to appeal to certain ideas and themes. And I think that could be a really interesting conversation to, to get into. I totally agree. Um, all right. Well, let's, any final thoughts on this episode before we, uh, before we depart for the day? for this episode. Well, I couldn't help but thinking and reading the afterward about Wendell Berry and kind of his stated purpose for his work. And so what you just said, David, and about comparison and kind of in my mind over the last 24 hours since I finished the book has been, you know, how, to what extent do these two authors how are they kind of walking this parallel journey as authors and to what extent do they succeed in their goals? And are they the same or different? You know, we're all big Wendell Berry fans. And so reading his afterward reminded me of that. So that's kind of something I've been contemplating. And I'm not trying to start a conversation. It's just a final thought. (laughs) Interesting. Everyone can think about that for the next week. Yeah. No final thought for me. I'm chewing on that. That's a really interesting idea. Mm. All right. Well, thanks to you both for, for joining me. Uh, Heidi, glad you were able to join us. And thank you. <laughs> thanks uh, for being patient with me, guys. <laughs> of course. Um, thanks to Classical U for sponsoring. Remember that you can head over to Classical U, and that is the letter U, not Y-O-U. ClassicalU.com slash code. And then you can enter code Cersei Podcast to uh, try Classical U free through June 29th. So there are over 35 self-paced courses there in classical education, and you can check those out. And remember, the code is Cersei Podcast at classicalu.com slash code. Uh, all right. With that, uh, for Adam Andrews and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We will talk to you next week and happy reading.